gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Well, all right. We are back, and uh, I have the pleasure today of talking to Dr. Natalie Martinek, a.k.a. Dr. Nat. Dr. Nat is a, um, among other things, a spiritual healer. Um, she received her PhD in developmental biology, which was a class I hated in college, <laughs> from the University of Toronto, uh, followed by some uh, postdoctoral studies in cancer research at the Peter McCullum uh, Cancer Center in, uh, in Australia, I believe. Um, and then she went on. She had some uh, moments of truth <laughs> and uh, had, a, had a big transition in her life and went on to uh, discover and uncover and author Ignite Your Spirit Therapy, which sort of bridges her scientific background with spiritual practice, treating chronic pain, trauma, negative relationship patterns, uh, setting, learning how to set healthy boundaries, which is a big one. Uh, overcoming depression, speaking one's truth, and opening up to the riches of spirituality. Dr. Nat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Seku. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is great. I, um, I'm really interested to hear, uh, for, for me and for our guests to hear your story, I think it's, um, it's really interesting and it reminds me of mine in, in terms of having a very um, scientific uh, background, um, mainstream background, and then sort of having that pull from the left side, from the left brain, and um, wanting to do something a little bit more involving with creativity, with emotions, with energy, um, which is you know very much in line with my life. So great! I'm glad we. I'm glad you was able mm-hmm. to make the time to uh, come on today. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. It's pretty early for me, but it's awesome. It's like, what time is it where you are? It's like 7 a.m. Okay, 7 a.m. in Australia. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Got you up early. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, it's 7 <laughs> o'clock in the morning there. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kind of get you going? Yeah, I wake up uh, around 6 in the morning and I meditate. And I kind of visualize my day and send energy forward into my day along with the intention for what I want to experience. Not necessarily specific events, but the feeling I'd like to have throughout the day. And usually there's, if I'm struggling with something like discipline or commitment (laughs) or, you know, feeling peaceful about something, then it gives me an opportunity to tune into that themes throughout the day like how am I going with that so yeah. I kind of set the stage in that meditation to become aware of those qualities that I want to pay attention to throughout the day that's beautiful beautiful intention is definitely important um, a few a few shows ago I was talking to um, Duke Garone who's a, a celebrity trainer and about the importance of intention when you begin a workout and um how it really improves, changes, or and affects 
the outcome of your workout. And it actually helps you in workout. If your intent is to go and become stronger, like when I work out, I, I set an intention that I'm going to be mentally, physically, and emotionally stronger. And that's why I'm working out. Ooh. It definitely has given me a different experience during my workouts versus before when I had no intention other than I'm supposed to do this. So let me drag my ass to the gym. <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> or, um, <laughs> In my younger days when it was, because I want to look cut and buff and pretty, you know. So, you know. Just a different intention. Right, right. Absolutely. So it's it's important. And, and similarly, recently, I've been sort of kind of trying to wake up in the morning and have that first thought be about what, um, how, how I want my day to, to progress. So mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's really important. And I'm sure it's something that you teach your clients. Definitely. All right, so let's jump right in um, to the truth prescription. Um, you know, the premise of the show is that all successful people, no matter the industry, have had to go through um, life lessons and they've had to go through certain truths. And it was confronting those truths that actually allowed them to break through certain barriers. So for you, let's start with, uh, with, let's start with personal, in your personal life. Hmm. Um, what has been a, a truth that you came up against were maybe ignoring and then found a way to deal with it and was able to break through? So in my personal life, I've kind of uh, had to go through processes of stop trying to please other and fulfill my responsibilities for other people. Mm. I tend to be a giver okay. and um, I would do it in my younger years for friendship or to be liked or to be to feel like I belong and by the time I hit the end, near the end of high school, I had enough of it. I think something inside me snapped and went, forget <laughs> it. I'm not doing this shit anymore because it's making me an angry person. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no amount of giving that's going to give me the experience that I want. And um, yeah. so I stopped kind of handing over. And that realization when I was 17 kind of started this whole thing of, well, what else do I need to do to start being more in control of my life and more in charge of what I want to be doing and how I want to be living? Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest truthful moment was when I was at, as a scientist. And I remember on my very first day of my postdoc, I moved to Australia. I was, you know, six to eight weeks pregnant with my first baby. Mm-hmm. And I sat down at my desk and thought, what the hell am I doing here? Wow. And um, yeah. I think that was the start of a process <laughs> of starting to unravel what were my untruths in order to discover yeah. what is true to me and then to actually have the courage to pursue it. Yeah. So that's a vague wow. answer for a big question. <laughs> no, it's it's huge. And I always, I li- I'd like to kind of go into how that affected those uh, closest around you, namely your um, your husband, because when you're going through that kind of seismic shift internally, um, it's got to affect people around you, particularly if they're not necessarily on the same, I don't want to say the same track, but they're not going at the same pace. Yes. I think every time I made a decision to do something different or to discontinue something, I would have 
you know, criticism or what are you doing <laughs> from my parents, especially right. from my brother, from those closest to me and admiration yeah. as well. Like that's really courageous for you to decide that you don't want to do this thing anymore that you've invested all this time yeah. and energy <laughs> into um, <laughs> and to try something different. So for example, meeting my husband, I met him on the internet. He was yeah. all the way in Australia. I'm all the way in Canada. Wow. I wasn't looking for a right. husband, um, but that's precisely what happened. So my Right. PhD su- supervisor, who's like another father figure to me at the time, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is crazy. And it was <laughs> right. at the time when internet dating had just come onto the scene. So it wasn't very sure. popular. Um, and so, But it just felt like I need to pursue this. This feels right to me. This mm. I've never mm. had such an instant rapport with someone, and especially on the other wow. side of the planet. And everything just happened so easily and so quickly. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I had a lot of people's fear being uh, sent my way instead of the of uh, encouragement that I'm coming out of a comfort zone and doing something a bit different um, yeah. and pioneering something potentially. And, you know, it all worked out. <laughs> 14 years later, we're still married. And um, Congratulations. Yeah. So when I'm going through changes, like, for example, leaving, leaving Canada to move to Australia, my husband loved living in Canada. He had established his life here. Things are going well. And I'm like, right, we're out of here. <laughs> Have my PhD. I'm out right. of here. So he was really right. understanding because he has a life already established in Australia. It was easy for him, but he wanted to stay. Um, but he knew how important right. it was for me to be able to move and experience life in a different way. Because it didn't feel right for me to stay in Canada anymore. It felt really suffocating. And the longer I stayed, yeah. the more suffocated I felt. So it was, uh, and it wasn't like something logical. It was just a feeling like my time here is up and I'm being called to another location. And I just, I have to honor that. And I stepped into Australia and life just seemed to magically all work out. I got a job. I had like instant friends. I had a place to live. I had my (laughs) in-laws. So that's an indicator that I'm doing something right here. Um, And then leaving the decision to leave academia, I didn't do, it wasn't an overnight decision. It took a year for me to leave from the moment I decided this is my last year and I need to do something different. And I had lots of dissent and especially from my colleagues because everyone is so fearful about doing something different, leaving something that they trained to do, thinking that this was going to be the, you know, the holy grail of life and have this status Mm. And uh, here I am laughing at it, going, nah, there's more to life than this. <laughs> and so it really pushed right. people's buttons. And um, But then a few people would come up to me and go, I secretly want to leave as well. How, how are you doing right. it? But right. they haven't had, they actually to this day are still there. So and that's five years later. Mm. So I gave wow. some hope to people. But um, I think detractors, criticism, and people trying to stop you are a positive sign that you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I, th- I remember reading something, I think it was, it might have been in the Bible where it was basically saying like, if people are criticizing you, ostracizing you, um, you it's, you're probably you're probably going in the right direction. That's a sign that you're probably doing the right thing. So, And it's so, it's so counterintuitive, right? Because we, we grow up our whole lives, you know, uh, being uh, inculcated into pleasing other people. You know, it's like you know, be a good boy, you know, mm. or in your, your case, be a good girl, you know, and, and then get some, you know, some kind of um, 
reward for that. Um, it's so courageous. Wow. Yeah, it's really courageous, particularly coming from that really, really stern, hard left left brain background. I mean, I know researchers, man. Researchers are like, oof, just you know, just calcified, <laughs> just, just you know, like yeah. I'm in the lab from eight to eight. I'm doing my research. I'm writing my papers. I'm getting my grants, and um, and that's my life. Mm. And um, it's a life for some, but I think if you have another calling. Um, it's important, which kind of leads me to the to the professional, which I think you touched on a little mm-hmm. bit. But if you can tell us a story that sort of illustrates uh, either a moment or talk about the truth um, that sort of helped you to move to, to move past um, whatever you know the blockages. I think even discussing just making the decision to you know what a, a year from now I'm leaving. Know, and what prompted that and, and, and what did you have to overcome to be able to have the courage to do it? I think being with a person who served as my anti-mentor was the best thing for me <laughs> because, um, I mean, I had a great experience in my PhD. There was, the sky was the limit. There was no, nothing too risky. My project was very risky uh, in terms of what I needed to do in order to get, you know, to fulfill the obligations of a PhD, but I had full support from my supervisor. He totally believed in me. He totally believed in just trying things out because life is here for experimentation. You know, life is your lab. And so do what you need to do. And again, I had lots of like, no, no, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And then I, you know, proved them all wrong. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) And then I get to Australia and it seems like a very different atmosphere there's a lot of fear around taking risks um, and that okay. doing things in a very predictable way. So I found it really confining because I'm creative mm. uh, in the way that I think. And I'm a big thinker. I'm sure. a visionary. And it didn't occur to me that I was that while I was doing my postdoc. But I would have ideas and knowing you know, an intuition about things that I, we couldn't yet prove because we didn't have the technology or it was just so far mm. removed from where we're at that people would think I'm crazy. But I think all visionaries <laughs> are seen as crazy because what they're doing is visioning the Correct. future in the present. So we don't Correct. yet have the technology to prove or to sh- demonstrate what I was feeling inside as my truth or the truth. Um, so I found yeah. it really confining and also coupled with the a toxic environment. There was a lot of disgruntled people, you know, the stress of always having to uh, prove yourself in order to get grants, yeah. in order to grants. get your papers yeah. published. All about the you're grants. standing up there yeah. giving a talk. You're defending your very existence, it felt like, Yikes. versus just your research. Right. <laughs> and um, after a while, I just started to notice how biased everything was, that we're not here doing research to help that patient on the on the ground floor. We're doing research uh, for overcome money. or to help them through this challenge. No, we're using our model, and you know, we're we're seeing things very opportunistically to get funding in order to sustain the system of academia. Now, this is a really cynical view, and it's not representing all kinds of research, but it's what I was feeling at the time that we're only here to sustain our own existence and it's entirely based on external validation. My very, uh, my ability to get a fellowship, to get my paper published easily or, you know, to, to get funded is I had to prove myself. I had to prove this, that, and the other and jump through lots of hoops. And it wasn't really 
dependent on there being truthfulness or not. So I think after a while, I started to feel this ethical dilemma inside myself. What am I doing with these animals? What am I doing in this place? I'm spending all this time and all this money pursuing an avenue that isn't taking me very far and isn't fulfilling the, the uh, promises it's making in a short period of time. And I also started thinking about, well, what else is out there? Um, I, you know, just reading different books and being in different environments, I would start hearing about energy or healing or, you know, nothing that I was pursuing, but I started thinking about we're more than bags of cells. I'm looking at an, a cell in an environment that's completely artificial, doesn't represent a person's experience. So how is this actually stunning that person's cancer experience? Um, yeah. And so I started to become more and more disillusioned. I got to the point where I was listening to talks or reading a paper and within the first few minutes I would identify the fundamental flaw that unraveled and discredited that entire study for me. So I started thinking I can't be in this place totally being judgmental (laughs) about this work and being paid for it. Like I can't do this anymore. It just wasn't working for me. And the longer I stayed, the less energy I had. And I'm an active person. I'm pretty Uh optimistic. I played competitive squash Um, And so that was my outlet for all this emotional turmoil. Um, I had two kids at the time and every part of my life started to suffer. My my marriage, the quality of my relation with my husband, um, I just wanted to escape. And I was doing a lot of escapist things and avoiding my responsibilities at home and having no motivation to turn up at work and to pursue the thing that I thought I loved. So back in 2010, I decided after feeling in a, being in a toxic environment that had bullying, that had neglect, that had all sorts of crazy shit going on. And not just in my lab, the entire institute um, culturally is pretty messed up. Um, that was my perception at the time. I decided I need to transition out. I have too much personality to be stuck at a lab bench. I need to be working directly with people, <laughs> even though I haven't trained as a psychologist or any sort of therapy or counseling, I had that ability in me to connect with people and to intuitively know what they needed um, without having the framework of, you know, a psychology degree. So I had to, I had to start honoring that and listening to that more. So I was like, what can I do to transition out of this research environment into something sort of related, but is more hands-on with people? And um, I decided I needed a mentor. I needed a woman who was, you know, really successful at her job. She was a researcher, um, has a great family life, social life, social skills. <laughs> and I found that person <laughs> in March 2010. But um, she was like, why do you need me? She was an oncologist as well as an amazing researcher, started this charity to identify um, as a database for tumors that are not yet identified. They don't have their rare tumor types. And she's just go getter woman and just amazing. And she's like, how can I help you? You're transitioning out. <laughs> right. I'm still in. Right, right. So I was like, I don't know. I need this mentor. So by the end of 2010, I was like, I can't, I didn't have a job, although I interviewed for lots of different positions. I was testing out my interview skills, my people skills, all these different things, which was great. Um, but I had no job. I said, I, I made a promise to myself that I won't stay. I need to leave regardless of this job or not. And my husband just started a business. So he went off on his Oof. own and we're paying, Oof. you know, childcare fees because we had this amazing childcare center. So we didn't want to give that up. But I said, I can't sustain this. I was starting to feel more and more depressed and tired. And at the end of 2010, I left 
And it was like a very quiet exit. There was no parting. There was nothing. I just kind of silently left the building and that was it. And it was very peaceful. It wasn't, I didn't have a hardened heart. I was so at peace with the decision I made. But that whole year leading up to it was just massive making peace with all sorts of parts of the role, my identity, giving up the status or this perceived high status, um, saying I'm not a scientist, I'm, I'm not a scientist in this way anymore. That's a huge thing. And I didn't realize how big it was until I left and I went to bed and I woke up maybe 20 hours later and I was in a complete depression. Wow. And um, wow. I had my mother with me before that point and she'd left. All my kind of social environments were on pause because it was holiday time, this Christmas time. So everything that was a support in my life was just gone in in an instant. Yeah. And I had nothing to replace that support with. And then I was just in this deep, dark place of depression. Wow. Um, and that lasted for a few weeks. Um, and I knew inside that it wasn't permanent. I knew it wasn't that something I need to seek medic medical help to get medicated because I'm very anti-medication for myself unless it's necessary. Sure. And I felt like I was going to be able to overcome it. But after a few weeks of that, there was no overcoming it. There was no change. And I sent my family out for the day and I just sat in my room and shook my fist <laughs> to the heavens, God, whatever was there. And I hadn't had a relationship with that big higher power at all. And I shook my fist, crying, screaming and demanding my life that this isn't the life I signed up for. And I demand the one I'm, I'm here for. And um, then I got a text message from a friend 30 minutes later um, who told me that her friend was visiting Melbourne the next day and I needed to meet her. And I met this woman and, you know, the divine, the universe sent me the person that I would listen to. And she was um, an obstetrician <laughs> gynecologist cha trained in China, practicing in Sydney as a pediatric occupational therapist. She had a master's in public okay. health and she was a spiritual healer and teacher. So it was like this blending of the two worlds. That was the perfect person that the divine had to send to me for me to start to open up to what I'm here to do. And that night she ran a meditation session and there was pictures of Jesus and my now spiritual teacher and Hindu statues. And as a Jewish woman, I didn't grow up with this stuff. It was really foreign. Mm. And mm. I was like, this is odd. I would get, you know, a lot of dissent from my community being in that space, but I knew I had to be there. And at the end of that meditation, the depression was gone. So wow. that was the beginning of my that was... phase two of my life. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Fantastic. So to, to wrap it all up, it sounds like the, the truth prescription for the professional side, at least, was when, you feel in, when you're feeling an energy drain, it's probably time to reassess and reevaluate what you're doing. You said that so much better you than I that. did. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, I'm I'm just taking what you're what you're giving me and, and putting it in a package for the listeners because I think it's important. Um, that's that's a that's a critical piece. You know, if you're doing something and not only you're not fulfilled, but I think the level of your energy, if you're feeling something is being taken from you. This, it's time to, to reevaluate and reassess. Um, and I think the other part of what you said that's extremely important is don't be afraid to start over, to throw it all away. Just because you spent an X amount of time doing something doesn't necessarily mean um, you need to do it. Maybe 
part of the process or the part of the journey was in doing it and then saying, you know what, I don't want to do this. This this podcast, in fact, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but this podcast, in fact, was initially started to promote a book that I wrote. And um, after spending about three and a half years writing the book with, with several authors and spending, you know, a, a, a decent amount of money on uh, uh, getting a book proposal together and uh, doing some initial marketing, I decided I don't want to write the book. <laughs> you know, it's just I had I mean I I wrote it but I don't want to put out the book I just had this epiphany one day I was with my family and we were all sitting around and I was looking at the people some of the people that this book would hurt because of some of the things that were in it that were true but that were in it and I just I just felt something inside that just said it's this is not this this shouldn't this this you can write another book but this <laughs> book shouldn't yes. um and and I got a little bit of, of flack from from people that uh, around me, people that knew you know the amount of money I spent, the amount of time that I, even the company I was working with, the book proposal, they were kind of looking at me like you know you spent all this money, all this time with us, all these meetings, all these brainstorming meetings, we created this amazing document, and now you don't want to do it anymore. Like no, <laughs> even my even my wife was kind of like really <laughs> you know I've been working on this for three and a half wow. years so but I what I did decide it is I really enjoy doing this podcast like this is amazing you know meeting people talking to people and really um discussing something that's near and dear to my heart which is dealing with the truth and I like I read something you wrote about um I think it was on your website you said something like bullshit has no you know can't can't stand a doesn't have a chance with me like bs doesn't have a chance with me i was like that's my girl yeah. right there that's my woman <laughs> yeah true you know it's amazing it's amazing so all right let's jump into some questions um something just sort of it's not superficial but i i i noticed this about you for those for people that are listening obviously you can't see her but if you see any pictures of her online she has red hair. And so my question is, why red hair? You know, red, at least from the chakra standpoint, stands for like safety and security. So I didn't know if that was the reason or there was some some reasoning about why you decided to have red hair. Wow, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that as the um, base chakra color. <laughs> that's yeah. a new dimension. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. It's something I just started doing um in my PhD, just starting to play with my hair and add a bit more fun into my life. And I found that having the hair color, and I played with all sorts of colors of the rainbow, but red was the one that okay. I liked the most. It just enhanced something about my personality that I don't find is as present when I just stay with my brown color. Uh, it's just, hmm. it's almost like an invitation to express more of a quirky, funny, a bit out there, you know, almost like, oh, it's okay. She, yeah, it's, it's, we understand she's different because look at her hair versus <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, the, the natural hair color. And I think right. maybe at first I started doing it because I liked the attention or I was doing it for attention. Ah. And now it's okay. more of a downplayed version because um, some of it's my natural hair color. Uh, that is just more of a how I express my color and flavor in the world. Okay. Got it. Got it. A little spice. A little spice. All right. Um, talk a little bit about um, the Ignite Your Spirit therapy, because um, I like you know I like the, the listeners to know a little bit more about it. I kind of went over it in the beginning. Just 
quick overview on what you do when you meet a client and, and, and um, how'd you come up with the name? Well, I didn't come up with a name. It was, it's developed by my teacher who I, I've been trained in. So it's a modality that was developed by my, my spiritual teacher, Shakti Durga, who um, okay. was a barrister, lawyer, before she kind of embarked on her spiritual path. So, Interesting. you know, that really, that was the mentor I was looking for, the woman with a family and who kind of pursued her own path. So she understands what it's like to be in kind of the the world, the Western-minded world, and had to kind of let that go in order to become. Um, so that was like the right model for me. And then the modality, which she brought in was exactly what I've been looking for. Because when I was making that transition out of academia, I started looking at Reiki and sound therapy. And there's so many thousands of therapies. And I was like, there must be one modality, one thing that can hold it all in. And that was Ignite Your Spirit Therapy. So I knew what I was looking for. And it was just great that it it found me, but I had to ask for it. (laughs) Um, And so uh, it's less of a therapy. So when I think of therapy, I think of someone doing something to something else, someone doing something to someone else versus we're okay. working in this sort of partnership that I can't do this work without uh, you and you can't do it without me, that there's, we're brought okay. together for whatever reason, karma, you know, just to mm. be able to transform a situation for someone else. But they're not the only one who benefit. I do as well. So there's something happening wow. that supports both of us in our own unique ways. And so the process, the Ignite Your Spirit process, is about recognizing that we're more than just a bag of cells, that we think, that we feel, (laughs) that we have experiences and memories, and we have things that don't even belong to us. We have memories and experiences from our parents, our ancestors, history, the collective, you know, the population, the society, the culture we're in. We're influenced by all these things that we're not these people existing in caves, that we're interde- we can be independent, but we're also interdependent, that we're influenced sure. by things that seem so distant, like Donald Trump becoming president has a huge impact on us in Australia. Even kids were feeling so, wow. feeling it so much and so far removed wow. from them, but we are totally influenced yeah. by everything. So it's recognizing what are all these things that do influence us and that we're also a soul, a higher self, and a divine essence, that higher power that's in everything that's within each of us. So, you know, that might be a big concept for some people who don't necessarily believe in a God, and you don't have to believe in that at all. You have to just be open to wanting to change your life experience. So that's what it is. So we... So when a person comes to see me, they'll have an issue, right? Why someone would see a doctor is right. because they have an issue. It's not right. because life is feeling really great. There's something up. <laughs> Something's wanting attention. Right. So um, we have a chat and I start to already receive information about what might be going on, but I don't automatically jump mm. in and say, this is what I think is happening and yada, yada, yada. Sure. I'm sure. trying to help them unpack their life and understand the landscape that they live in. So who's influencing them? Who are, what are the uh, qualities of the relationship they have with different people or with themselves or with their beliefs? And then we go into a meditation, and I call it a spoken meditation because there's a conversation happening throughout this meditation where I tune in, and this is more right-brained, where we're using our intuition and more of this abstract way of experiencing the world that isn't necessarily logical. It's the gestalt knowledge that comes in, you know, when you just have 
information there, but you never studied it. You don't remember if you've ever learned it. It's just there and it's truth in that moment. Um, and so you test it out with that person. Uh, yeah, so I just tune into what is happening for them in their unconscious, the stuff that they're not yet aware of, and we make it conscious. So for example, um, a quick example is someone was close to me, was complaining they had lower back pain. And this person has never had lower back pain. They have a very healthy sense of self, really good self-esteem. They're very physically active. They eat well. They're, you know, they have generally good life. Um, but knowing that lower back pain is related, if I look at the chakras and the energy centers, that there's uh, something to do with security, safety, belonging, feeling supported. So I just started to ask some questions about what their experience was like. And then I shared, well, I feel this is something to look into because, you know, we are here to have support. We're here to belong. We are here to live a prosperous and abundant life. And so when we feel restricted in um, the supports we do have, that we're only allowed a certain amount or we only trust a small circle of people, we're actually restricting ourselves or limiting ourselves from having an abundant life experience. She started crying and the pain disappeared. And that was a five minute conversation. So wow. there's so much that we can do just through conversation, wow. but being able to understand what their world looks like to them, to kind of dive in and see what their world looks like. That's what I do. So I, I tune into the energy of a person um, and the energy using my hands. I can feel chakras and I could, I receive information because they're like libraries and then we go through a process of unwinding or unraveling or transforming the beliefs that have empowered the life they have now that isn't helping them. And we, repl we go through a process of replacing it. So it's kind of like taking, unplugging from a really crappy power source. And so it's like taking it out of a shitty power source <laughs> and putting it into a better one. Yeah. So it's all about empowerment. If you've got this contradictory belief sitting in you somewhere, the untruths, in you. You've got to recognize what is untruthful or no longer truthful. It was once upon a time, but it's now no longer truthful. And right. redefining what truth is for that person with that person. Right. Let me ask you, do you, it's interesting, do you, do you ever turn it off? Meaning like, are you, is it a place that you go when you go into a therapeutic session? Or are you at like in the coffee shop and stand, standing next to some, next to somebody and maybe perceive something? Um, well, you become open. So when you're in a therapeutic session, you're kind of, you're getting their consent to work in this way. So you're opening the energy field to take a look and then you close it after. Whereas in a coffee shop, that's not something I'm doing because I don't have permission to tune into what's going on for that person. Um, I'm very aware of the law of free will and not kind of interfering with other people's stuff. But I can, sure. if I get curious and I'm just someone someone is taking my attention for whatever reason, then I'll tune in and I'll get some information. Now, whether or not it's accurate is, is different because, again, we're not in this consensual um, kind of relationship or understanding. But, yeah, sure. I do receive information, um, but I also am very good at turning things on and off. So that's not something that okay. I personally am concerned about because I don't feel drained in different environments. I can manage myself. Okay. That's great. That actually leads me to my next question because, you know, doing he energy healing can be very taxing and um, sort of what are some of the things you do to keep yourself 
um, full of energy. Mm. Energy healing can be taxing. And it's only yeah. taxing if you're using your own energy to do the healing. And you're not meant to use your own energy. There's an um, you know, unlimited, infinite supply of energy in the universe. That is the healer, mm. not me. Ah. So, so you become I, a conduit, essentially. So the way it works is that I'm breathing in or taking in 100% of the energy that I can, but only transmitting like 60 or 70% while I'm doing my work because people don't need 100%. They don't need, especially children, they need very little. And so I get to take some for me because it helps me and give whatever's necessary to my client. It's what gets transmitted through me. So I think a lot of energy healing practices don't learn these techniques. So people feel they can only do one Reiki and then they're done. Whereas I can see 10 clients in a day and feel like high as a kite and really like alive. Wow. My background is in emergency medicine. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of days ago about how I have to constantly, I don't work in the emergency department a lot anymore, but when I do, I have to be very conscious of not seeing people as just another number, mm-hmm. like on a, on a conveyor belt, just going by because essentially that's how the hospital is set up. They come in they get registered. They put them in a bed. You see them, you go to the next mm-hmm. one. And, you know, you work for, I mean, I've been doing um, fall emergency medicine. I finished in 2006. So over 10 years, um, day after day, it could start to get, this is the, you know, 3,000th person I'm seeing with chest pain, mm. you know, that's probably not cardiac, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you kind of go in kind of, so I definitely try to keep a mental um, intention of this is a, you know, this is a human being with a soul and, if my mom was sitting here or my sister or my you know, father, how would I want them to be treated? It's, it's tough. It's definitely tough, particularly when you're tired. Mm, you can't, it's hard to you be know, compassionate when you just want to sleep. And then all your yeah. people you're there to right. serve become aggravants and, and irritants. Exa- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They become irritants. Yeah. You know, it's four o'clock in the morning. Why are you here for a uh, earache? You know? <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to ask you this. In your therapeutic process, um, what do you find more prevalent? People not knowing the truth or being unwilling to accept it? Oh, very good question. I think people who come to see me generally know that they're, they're ready for change because the way they've been living okay. has been untruthful to yeah. them. Now, it doesn't mean they walk out of a session and bam, they're living their truth. It's a process. It requires courage. <laughs> yes. Yeah, done. I mean, some incredible <laughs> changes have happened for people after a session with me um, or a series sure. of sessions. But, you know, I think it's anyone who's opening to open to changing their life. Let me cut you off for a second because I, I want to, to that, what you just said, I want the listeners to go check YouTube. You gave a, a, a talk to a young woman. I think it was conflict to something. Oh, man, that's um, old. <laughs> it, well, it's not that old. Well, they posted it recently. But if you go on YouTube, put in your name, there's a couple of, of things that come up. But one of them is this talk you, you give to a young lady and you actually do a session with mm. her. And I'm telling you, when she comes back on camera, she looks completely different. Mm. I mean, it was fantastic. I was like, wow, you know, Dr. Nat's really doing something there. So anyway, continue. I'm sorry. I just had to. I just had to interject that it was. I mean, it was a real like. You know, she was. She had this. I mean, use the SAT word refulgence. <laughs> you know, on her face. You know, she was just shining. I said, "Wow, what happened in this in this session?" And she, you could tell, like she really felt good. So anyway. yeah, we hold a whole lot of mental shit in our system and emotional stuff, 
And especially yeah. in our society where it's not okay to feel sad or angry or frustrated or, you know, we tend to complain, but we're not dealing yeah. with the underlying stuff that is keeping that stuff in there. So why, what's with the anger? What is it trying to tell mm. me? What is the shame trying to tell me? But we resist yeah. it so much. We we think it's terrible, you know, we, t- form, we, we try to medicate it, we try to numb it, we try to do anything to avoid feeling some of these things that it just accumulates in our <laughs> system yes. and is the foundation for a lot of our problems and our pain, just not just physically, but also in our relationships, pain in our relationships. So when you just acknowledge some of those things that are there and you go through a process of help clean that out of someone's system, of course, they're going to be shiny because they're, we're restoring their lustrous yeah. spirit. We're allowing more of their mm. spirit to be present in their body and in their interactions. Flow. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. when people are really open, bam, the change is amazing. Um, wow. So I think some people know they need change. And then the rest, yeah. I've had people who do a lot of personal development training. They go to one workshop, the next workshop. But they're not really transforming themselves. It's feeding their mind. Sure. And you can't you need right. to use your mind to change yourself rather than reinforce what's already in there. Because our mind right. can become fixed and that's when life becomes really dull and harder yeah. because we're not yeah. using it to be flexible and to start to see other perspectives or other possibilities, right. like more visionary thinking or growth mindset. So people yeah. who say they want change. And they have a session with me um, and they feel amazing. It looks like they float out the door. But then a week later, I'll get an email saying nothing's changed. And I'll be like, that's really interesting because yeah. I have a different yeah. I, I have a different experience of what you went through. So what happens sure. sometimes when we change our consciousness about something, then our ego gets really scared because our ego is yep. about keeping things as they are and remaining in the comfort zone. So Addicted to the addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, I always say that the left brain, the purpose of the left brain is to calculate known variables. Mm-hmm. And people don't people don't really realize that. Like, you know, five plus five equals ten. I've got this manuscript I need to memorize. You use your left brain. That's what it's mm-hmm. for. There's nothing wrong with it. But when you start talking about a whole nother world of possibilities, it's not one that we're often uh, exposed to throughout our entire mm. lives. And so, our education system yeah. is geared towards developing the left brain and not so much about the Correct. right brain. Those who feel Correct. the pull, the call to express their creativity through art, through music, then their right brain is generally more involved. So I think our role is to sure. use both that the right. left brain should not be the decision maker. It should not be the, the guide. It should be the servant to the intuition, right. to the, the <laughs> e- experience of the, the universe or, or life in a very expansive way. And we use our left right. brain to plan, to take action, but first informed by that bigger picture. Uh, I, my last question, I want to ask you about this. You talk about this a little bit on your website Talk about the there's a there's this real phenomenon of approval addiction. I don't people think people realize it. Talk a little bit about it and how it drains your energy or drains one's energy. Yes, I, that was one of the harms I've identified as um, contributing to compassion fatigue and that sense of burnout in health professionals. And if you look at our education system, the way we're brought up, we're here for approval. You know, we have to, in order to get the good girl or the bad girl or the good boy. Sorry, we have to 
seek someone's approval. So we learn from very on that we need validation from authorities. And then our education system is no different. And then you go into your professional training, it's the exact same bloody thing. And then for me being a scientist, the whole thing was about external validation, needing approval. Yeah. So it's wow. tiring. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting. the trick exhausting. is to recognize yeah. that one of the needs of ourselves, and it's, not, it's a non-negotiable need, just like the need for shelter, for food, for breathing, you know, good quality air, to move our bodies on a regular basis, is there are a few other needs like approval. And that there's no one <laughs> on the planet who can satisfy that for us except for us. We have to start to get to a state where I approve of myself, even if I fail, even if I make mistakes, even if I said that stupid thing to someone, I can't beat myself up over it. I'm learning. I'm human and I'm here to learn. Yeah. And I'm here to grow through that. So I need to start giving myself a, an easier time and give myself a break and just start to approve of myself. And the more I'm doing that, it's amazing what my experience has uh, shown me is that I naturally receive that from other people and I don't need it from them. I don't care what people think. I'm here to do what I'm here to do and bring the best of me in all the situations I'm in, but I don't do it because I need their approval. And it's a huge change because when we're investing our energy in other people giving to us what we need to do to ourselves, it's like you know, rays of energy are extending out of our body and plugging into other people. And that's not good for anyone. So I need to kind of withdraw those belief that those people are my energy supplies or my energy sources when they're not. I'm my energy source and the universe is my energy source and I need to keep working with that. So I approve of myself. But we get addicted to it because that's the path to success in so many different industries and so many different environments. Yeah. But if you look at people like Richard Branson, he couldn't care less about what other people think. Yeah. He's approving of himself. Yeah. He follows his guidance. He follows his his inspiration and he pursues it. And he doesn't seem to have a fear about failure and losing millions of dollars because he's just going to have more to do other amazing things. Yeah. So part of learning and growing is making a lot of mistakes. And so many people benefit from that because then they learn what not to do. <laughs> Exactly. Very true. So very true. Approving is so important and it's a it's a way of generating energy for yourself. That's what I've found for me. All right, let's let's jump into the uh last segment. Mm. Yes or BS, which is tailor made for you. <laughs> <laughs> um number one. In two thousand seventeen we live in a very narcissistic society. Well, <laughs> I think it depends on the society. So that can be true and BS. <laughs> it could be both, depending on, on depending. Well, I'll say the overwhelming majority of society is narcissistic. Yes or BS? Oh, this is so hard to say, because, you know, I have a vision that everyone <laughs> is so self-satisfied and fulfilled and they don't need approval from others. <laughs> so I want to say truth. No, it's, it's, I mean, BS, but I think, yes, it's true. There's a lot of that. If you look, if you think about it, sort of the, the thing with posting pictures of your food and of your, of your face and of your dog and, you know, it's, it's very much look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. For those who are and, doing um, it, but there are those who are not doing right. it. <laughs> yes, that is true. There are those there are those who are not doing. But I, I guess I'm just saying the reason I even said 2017 because 50 years ago there was way less sort of 
systemic cultural narcissism, I think. I don't know. It just seems 50. I'm saying 50 years ago. All right. Number two. I've asked this one before. I'm interested in your take. Eastern medicine is better than Western medicine. (laughs) I want to say true, but I think it is BS. (laughs) (laughs) There's great things about both and they can complement each other. (laughs) All right. Number three. Healing from a physical injury is easier than healing from an emotional one. Why are you asking me such hard questions? Depends on the person. I think healing Keep. from physical is easier, yeah, than emotional. There's less involved okay. in that. Yeah. Truth. Okay. Number four. The ego is the source of all human problems. Truth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think this is number five. Number five. Physicians generally know more about medicine than about themselves. Oh. <laughs> these are my colleagues now. I know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Uh, I'll just talk about the ones that have been in my sphere then. Yes, true. Okay. I think the younger physicians okay. are more focused on the things they need to do on others than self-reflection okay. and the impact of their work on themselves and how what they see in others can be informative of how they need to, how they can understand themselves better and to derive meaning from their experiences versus feeling overwhelmed or burnt out by them. But I think as you spend time and gaining experience, if you haven't burned out from the profession, um, then I think something changes in you that makes you more wise. And um, yeah, so you start to know more about yourself than the need to know about medicine. Because as you understand yourself, then you can help understand someone else and what their experience is. And it has less to do with medicating than anything else. Correct. Number six, being a mom is more taxing than energy healing and counseling. Hell yeah. (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) That's the toughest job. That's the real job. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mine, mine is back there making noise behind this door. Mm. Um, all right. And the last one. This is an interesting one. For homeless or jobless person, spiritual practice is not possible. A homeless or jobless person, well, it's BS. It is possible. But again, it's up okay. to them. Okay. BS. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all I have. Um Thank you. Thank you. This was amazing. Very informative. I, I definitely feel a connection with you. Very kindred. Mm. Tell the listeners how they can connect with you on uh, on the internet, social media, etc. They can find me on my website, drnataliemartinek.com. I have a Facebook page, same name, Twitter as well, Natalie Martinek. And I... Yeah, I actually have a group on Facebook that is called Ethics and Ego Management. And it's basically conversations <laughs> about the stuff that we encounter in practice and to get some clarity and to get out of our nice. egos a little bit more while not rejecting them, loving our egos at the same time and how they help sure. us navigate life. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Dr. Nat, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
And I will sign off as I always do. Please, listeners, remember, the truth will set you free if you let it.